something special that we're going to be able to do. As a church, we want to make an impact, not only in our valley, but we want to, we want to have impact in other parts of the world as well. And God, uh, through the history of our church, has enabled our church to have influence in other parts of the world as we support missionaries and movements and things that are happening in places that are really far from our valley. And this morning we get a little bit of an opportunity to hear from someone that we've had a relationship with for a long time. And I'm going to ask Ted to go ahead, and I'll introduce you here in a minute, but first I'm just going to have you stand here with me. So this is Ted and Renate, his wife, Renate Rubish, and we go way back with the Rubishes. I mean, the Hendersons go back to when we first came, which was in the 1993, but, but uh, the Rubish family, Ted is a second-generation missionary. Right. And you look at him, now, I mean, no offense, <laughs> but a second-generation, he's been around a while too, right? We were talking about that. So... You were raised in India and now are doing ministry in Sri Lanka, and I know that story is a little more complicated than that, but that's what it boils down to. And Ted shared with me last night that his folks were some of the very, and possibly the very first missionaries that Trinity ever supported back in the 1950s. So now we're supporting a second generation uh, family, and it's just an exciting way of uh, being reminded that God has used our church for a long time in a lot of places we hardly even think about, and... uh, he has more of that in mind. So we uh, have, are happy to have Ted and Renate here with us this morning, and uh, he's going to share with us. But I wanted to share one thing before, before you spoke. And uh, we as a church have been praying for our valley, right, for over the last year. Specifically, we've been praying a prayer from the book of... Does anybody remember? Please tell me you remember where this book is found that we pray that God would fill this valley with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the what? Like the waters cover the sea. Thank you. Who knows where it is? Where is that found? Habakkuk. Thank you. Thank you. Do you know where I first heard that and I was, where I was first inspired to think about praying that for our valley? I heard that probably 20 years ago from Ted Rubish. I hear that about every time I encounter him as his prayer for Sri Lanka. And so really, that is something that, that's an influence that he's had on me and on you. And so uh, we're happy to have Ted and Renate. They do uh, leadership training and church strengthening in the beautiful island of Sri Lanka. We're going to hear more about that, and then uh, Ted's going to share God's Word with us. So would you put on those same smiles you had for me a minute ago, and let's welcome Ted Rubish. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. And what a delight it is to be back at Trinity. It's true. Uh, this church supported my folks uh, as missionaries before I was born. And I'm 62. So there has been a connection between Trinity and the extended Rubish family for well over half a century. Is that awesome or what? I think that is so cool. And uh, such a delight to be back with you. It has been about four years since we've been here. So there are many of you probably who have never met us, never seen us before and uh, we're delighted to get to know you. We've got a little display table at the back, and uh, one of our little side projects in Sri Lanka is a cottage industry uh, that helps uh, women who are without husbands, who need to support their families and so forth, uh, to support themselves by card making. And my wife, Renate, who's from Germany, by the way, uh, has some of those cards at the back. Come and have a look and and, uh, chat with us and uh, get to know us a little bit more about our ministry. Now, uh, we are working and living in the island of Sri Lanka. That's where I grew up, not India. Um, 
And if we can just have that map up there, uh, just, just in case you're not sure where Sri Lanka is, Sri Lanka is the little teardrop-shaped island off the tip of India. So we are literally about as far away from here as you can get this morning. And if you fly to Sri Lanka and you keep going once you get there, you're already coming back to the States. So we are literally half a world away, but we would love to see some of you come out and visit us. Bring a work team or send your pastor out, and uh, it, it, would be, it would be really great to uh, have that connection. But we've had many, many years. Our kids uh, all born and uh, grown up in Sri Lanka. Uh, they're adults now. They're over here. Uh, but we are here on home assignment. We've been uh, in the States in our home in Trout Lake, Washington, not too far from here. And we will head back to Sri Lanka in early January. So it's a real privilege to be able to have one Sunday, at least, with this faithful church that has been a part of our team for so many years. Now, in your, in your brochure, I think this morning there is a, there is a, for those of you who are note takers, blessed be the note takers, um, uh, there's a, there's a thumbnail outline, uh, if that will help you to kind of keep track of where we're going this morning. Uh, I wonder how many of you have ever put together one of those 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzles. You know, the kind that, lies around for days and days uh, and never seems to get finished and only irritates the housewife and the family because, you know, it makes a mess. And Or maybe you remember a Thanksgiving weekend, maybe the Thanksgiving weekend that's coming up, when, when you and your family uh, started one of these things with great enthusiasm. Um, and, of course, as we all do, you did the easy bits first, right, the interesting parts, until you finally got to the sky. Remember that? You got to the ocean bits, the boring stuff that really got hard, and, uh, and uh, you had started with enthusiasm, but you got a little discouraged in the process, and you were tempted to give up, but you persevered, and you kept going. You kept checking the picture on the box top, and you knew that eventually uh, all of those loose, fragmented pieces were going to become part of that beautiful picture that you saw on, on the box top. And, and eventually, one of you had the, the great satisfaction of putting that last little piece into the puzzle. It was the one of you that kept that last piece hidden in his pocket, right? Because you, you wanted to make sure you were the last one to put the piece in. And you had the satisfaction of standing back and enjoying this sense of accomplishment. And then because you were so fed up with it, you said, now we're going to paste this to a piece of cardboard, we're going to frame this, and we're never going to do it again. We've got one of those in our living room in Sri Lanka. And it's a 5,000 piece. It's got four pieces missing. So the first thing we ask our guests is say, can you find the four missing pieces of our 5,000 piece puzzle? Anyway, we got fed up with it. We said, this is going on the wall and we're not going to make this one again. Now, I think one of the reasons why we enjoy uh, doing jigsaw puzzles like this is, interestingly enough, because we're made in the image of God. A God who loves putting puzzles together. Uh, he is a master at puzzle making. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see him creating uh, and, and putting together a most amazing puzzle called creation. Creation. A, a puzzle that is made up of billions of pieces that not only include galaxies and supernovas and, and stars without end, but includes the world that he has made for us to live on. An amazing jigsaw puzzle uh, of mountains and meadows and rainbows and roses and DNA and, and seasons and 
beetles, 16,000 varieties of, of beetles, uh, oceans and skies and the changing seasons, and, and most precious of all, into the mix, human beings made in his image, male and female, who are given by God the capacity to be, to love him and to be in a personal relationship with him. And in Genesis, God takes all of these, these pieces and he connects them up together and he fits them together into this amazing cosmic jigsaw puzzle. A, a puzzle that was meant to be a glorious expression of what God is like. An expression of his power. An expression of his amazing wisdom. An expression of his holiness and, and his love. So that the psalmist would stand back and say in Psalm 19, the heavens declare... The glory of, of God. And, and, uh, and the angels in heaven would cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when it was done, it was a pretty amazing puzzle. We are told that God took six, six days to put this whole thing together. And, and when he'd finished, he took a step back and he said, Teenagers, this is awesome. This is totally awesome. This, this, is, this is good. This is, re- this is really good. And, 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 and it was. It was an, an amazing puzzle. Sadly, of course, we know that things didn't stay that way. Uh, Genesis 3 goes on to tell us uh, the story of how sin came into the world. And how Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God. And how as a result, this amazing puzzle that God had made started falling apart. And the, and the pieces started fragmenting. And the beautiful picture of God's glory on the box top was marred and spoiled by the brokenness of sin. And it doesn't take us any more than reading the headlines of our newspapers to see where this has brought us to ever since. Uh, a polluted planet. Uh, corruption in government everywhere we turn. Millions of people today displaced by, by war and violence, increasing racial tensions around the world. The gifts of marriage and sexuality increasingly distorted and destroyed. And, and most tragic of all, God's uh, relationship with mankind damaged and broken by sin and badly in need of repair. Clearly, as the descendants of Adam and Eve, the further that we have moved away from the God who pieced us together, the more fragmented and disjointed the puzzle of our lives and our world has become. And frankly, if it weren't for the promises of God and his word, I would be in despair. Wouldn't you? Don't you ever get depressed when you read the headlines these days? And, and sometimes, you know, there came a time in Sri Lanka, I, I woke up every morning just depressed with the news. And I said, Lord, I'm going to commit myself to starting my day by reading your word first. I'm, I'm, I'm vowing not to read the news until first I've looked at the promises of God's word. Because it was so discouraging. And, and frankly, if it wasn't for those promises, we would despair. Wouldn't you? I certainly would. Now, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that God still loves making puzzles. God's big picture restored. How encouraging it is to know this morning that we serve a God whose specialty isn't in tearing things apart. There are people for whom that's their spiritual gift. 
criticizing, tearing things apart. How good it is to know that God's specialty isn't tearing things apart. His specialty is in putting things back together again. And you see, no matter how fragmented things may seem to get, the fact is that God is not in despair this morning. He's not sitting up there in heaven biting his fingernails down to the third knuckle thing. What in the world am I going to do about this mess out there? God has no intention of allowing sin and Satan to ultimately ruin the world that he put together. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that it is God's unchangeable purpose, his unchangeable intention to put the broken puzzle back together again, to restore the picture on the top of the box. That is why God sent Jesus. That's why Jesus came and lived among us and died for us and and rose again. With the coming of Jesus at Christmas, God began the process of restoring his kingdom and putting the pieces of the puzzle back together again. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 and 10, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. And this is the plan. That at the right time, you notice this, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. And for the last 2,000 years, around the world, person by person, Nation by nation, God has been putting the puzzle of his kingdom back together again. And the day is coming, we are told in the scripture, when, when Jesus will return again and his kingdom will come, how do we say it in the Lord's Prayer? His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And the day is coming when God's family will be complete and the puzzle will be finished and things will be right again. It's okay to be a little Pentecostal at this point in my sermon. Yes, yes, do it, Lord. How, how we long for the day when things will be right again. That's what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how do we know that's going to happen? Well, I know because I've cheated. I've read the last chapter of the story. Uh, and I know how the story ends. You know, my wife is somebody who really enjoys getting into a novel. It's an easy thing for me for a birthday or an anniversary rundown, get her a good, good novel to sink her teeth into. But, you know, she does something that really irritates me. And some of you husbands will know exactly what I'm talking about. She'll start reading. She'll get the first four or five chapters done, get the idea where this thing is going, who the, who the key players are. And then you know what she does? She jumps to the last three chapters. And I and I said, you, you can't do that. That's illegal. <laughs> Next time you do that, I'm going to take out the last three chapters until you finish the book. And then, you know, you can see you spoil the whole thing. She says, no, no, don't do that. Because, you know, I get so under stress and under tension, you know, wondering how this is all going to turn out in the end. You know, who's, who's going to survive? Who's going to live? Who's going to die? Who's going to win the princess? And, you know, I have to go to the end so that, uh, you know, then, then I can know how, how it's going. She says, you know, if you, if you, don't, if you don't let me do that, I'm going to be a wife under stress, under tension. I won't be able to cook very good meals, you know, and I won't be a very loving wife. And, uh, you know, it's in your interest to let me do it this way. And, and so, and because, because when I know the end, I can go back through the middle chapters, and I'm, you know, I'm at peace because, you know, I've, I've read the end. Now, in a way, it's the same thing for us. We read the headlines. We're in the middle chapters. We, Lord, you know, what's happening here? But 
hang on. We are people who've read the last, the last chapter, and we know how it's going to end. And, and, and no matter what CNN has to say, or, or Fox News, or NBC, we know that in the end, God wins. And one day, the puzzle will be complete. And we look around at us in, a, uh, you know, in despair, uh, at a world that seems to be disintegrating before our eyes. We need to remember to look at the picture on the box top. That's where our future lies. Not in the next presidential election. It lies with the picture, the last chapter that God has given for us on the box top. That is God's mission. That's why you have a missionary here this Sunday, to remind ourselves that God is on a mission to rebuild a fractured world, puzzle of our world, and to ask ourselves how we can be a part of that. What's my piece of the puzzle? And that, of course, is the wonderful thing about God's puzzle-building plans. You and I are included. Uh, the fact is that God longs to draw us into the process. You see, if there's anything that God uh, enjoys more than putting a puzzle together, it's putting a puzzle together with you and me. That's why we do this at Thanksgiving, because it's something we enjoy doing together. God doesn't simply want us to be pieces of the puzzle that he's building. He wants us to be a part of the puzzle-building process. We're his children He's our Father. He, he loves us, and He wants us to be involved, and He invites us to join Him, uh, to work with Him in the process. Now, we have a wonderful example of this in our passage this morning from Mark chapter 3, 7 to 19. It's a passage that informs us of how Jesus, in, his, in the early days of His ministry, invites a group of 12 young people uh, young men, to join him in his work. These 12 men, in a sense, uh, are the first 12 pieces of the puzzle that will one day include millions and millions of men and women who, like them, have put their faith in Christ and decided to follow Jesus. These 12 were to serve as the catalyst for the millions of, of puzzle pieces that were to be added in the years to come. And by looking at the way that Jesus drew them in and included them in the puzzle-building process, we can learn something about the way that he invites us and challenges us to understand our place in the puzzle of God's mission. So let me, let's, uh, let me read the passage for you from, uh, from Mark chapter 3. I'm reading it from the New American Standard Version. And I think we've got it on the PowerPoint as well. And Jesus went up on the mountain... And called those he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, my question is, what can we learn from this passage about the way that Jesus chose these 12 men and put them to work in the puzzle-building process? And by extension, what can we learn about how he chooses and uses you and me? 
Okay, that's what we're going to try to pick up from this passage. Now, notice then, first of all, that Jesus picks the pieces. We're told in verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and he called those he himself wanted. And they came to him and he chose them. Jesus picks the pieces. It's only when you stop and think about what kind of guys these were that this statement becomes truly amazing. And what's amazing about this list, get this folks, what's amazing about this list is, is simply that there was nothing amazing about any of them. That's what makes this list amazing. Frankly, looking at them from the outside, and no one would have dreamed that this bunch would ever amount to much at all. Later on, after Jesus had descended and gone back to heaven, we're told in Acts chapter 4, Verse 13, that Peter and John were in the temple, and they were speaking with the, you know, the hierarchy of the day. They were speaking with the, with the scribes and the leaders and the lawyers in the temple, and, and were told there that as they were speaking to them, it, it says it was, it was obvious to all that they were uneducated and untrained men. Uneducated and untrained. This was a disparate, obviously disparate collection of scruffy, unrefined, unembellished men with, with virtually no credentials to their names at all. And four of them constantly smelled like fish. A, a bunch of guys for whom most people would never have given a second thought. And, and here Jesus is on the cusp of, of starting something that is one day going to grow into a global movement. And are you telling me he chooses these guys as his A-team? Are you kidding me? Uh, you, you would think that Jesus would be looking for savvy young college graduates with, uh, with degrees, uh, you know, in communications and, and uh, you know, marketing skills and, and, and so forth. Uh, you, you can hardly believe that these, this is his 18. I can imagine Jesus getting an applicant analysis from the Jordan Management Consultancy that might have sounded like this. Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We've run the results through the computer and arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. You guys ever been there someplace like that before? Uh, It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable, given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities for leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interests above company loyalty. You know how their mother was trying to angle for them to get special seats on Jesus' cabinet, right? They, they personal, place personal interest above company law. Thomas tends to, to demonstrate a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine company morale. Matthew is an unscrupulous tax collector for the government and has been blacklisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot all definitely have radical leanings and register high scores on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. A man of ability, 
resourcefulness, meets people well, keen business mind, contacts in high places, highly motivated, ambitious, responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your right-hand man. It's interesting, isn't it, that Judas is at the end of every list of disciples in the Gospels, a reminder to us of how close a person can be to Jesus and yet end up losing everything. That's, that's an important point. It's, it's also interesting that Peter is at the beginning of every list of disciples as a reminder of what a mess you can make of your commitment to Jesus Christ and still become a rock in his purposes. And, and what it does, it tells me that these men were not only unlikely choices, but that they were, they were pretty rough around the edges, subject to every failure and temptation known unto men. Would you have picked them? Would I? Probably not. But the fact is that Jesus chose them. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise so that no man may boast before God. And for sure, that is exactly what Jesus did here. It's interesting that we're told specifically that Jesus wanted these men. I wonder when the last time was that any of them had ever felt and truly wanted by anybody. And maybe that's why we're told they came to him and they responded to him, because here was somebody who actually valued what they had to offer. And I want you to know this morning that when God is looking for people who will join him in his mission to put the puzzle of this world back together again, he's not looking for people who have got life down pat and have, you know, have all the snappy answers. He's looking for people who are humble, who are willing to offer to Christ whatever they have, including their weaknesses and their inadequacies, and are ready to respond to his call. Does that describe any of you this morning? Jesus wanted these 12 men. And there's no question in my mind this morning that if, if you can identify with any of these guys, he wants you too. And so Jesus picks the pieces, and every one is surprising. Notice, secondly, that not only Jesus not only picks the pieces, notice that he prepares the pieces. Now, this is really important, so stick with me here. Verse 13 goes on to say, notice this carefully, he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Did you notice the order in which those three phrases come? He appointed the twelve, chose them, so that they would be with him, and then he could send them out to preach. Please don't skip over that little phrase in the middle. It is absolutely vital. You see, when Jesus chose the twelve, he wasn't just looking for employees to get a job done. He was looking for followers who were prepared to enter into a lifelong, intensive personal relationship with him, and to make that relationship the center of their lives for the rest of their lives. Why was that so important? It was important because Jesus knew the only credential that would truly prepare them to do what he was calling them to do was going to be an intensive, personal, ongoing, lifelong relationship with him. It was only through Jesus 
that they would receive the strength and the courage to do what he was going to ask them to do. It was only from him that they would ever get the authority to confront the demonic powers that were out there. It was only from him that they would ever find the joy and the perseverance that they would need to keep them going through thick and through thin. Jesus had told them later on, I am the vine and you are the branches. If If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And without him, Jesus knew they would burn out in a flash. But with him, they, they, he knew they would have all the grace and all the courage and all the resources that they would need and more that they would ever need to fulfill the task he was giving them. Remember in Acts 4.13, I was just mentioning that earlier, when Peter and John were speaking to the chief priests and the elders in the temple after Jesus had gone to heaven. Now notice this again, very carefully. We're told, now when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, notice this, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Notice that? They took note that these men had been with Jesus. The Jewish leaders recognized that while Peter and John may have lacked uh, all kinds of social graces, educational credentials, professional qualifications, they took note. They, these men had the spiritual DNA of Jesus planted in their systems, and that trumped everything else. Whatever, whatever else uh, they, they, they were lacking, one thing was clear to everyone. These guys had been hanging around with Jesus, and, and their hearts had been permanently infected with his DNA. You want to turn your world upside down uh, for, for Christ? Um, you want to join Jesus in putting the fractured puzzle of, of this world back together? And listen, before Jesus ever sent the twelve out to win the world for Christ, he called them first to be with him. And that's how 12 ordinary followers of Jesus started a movement that turned the world upside down. And if you want to join Jesus in putting the fractured puzzle of the world back together again, you need first to spend time with him. You need to spend time in his presence. You need to spend time worshiping him, talking with him learning how to listen to him speak to you through his word. You need to spend time seeking his counsel for the decisions you're making right now. Because if you're not, you need, you need to be with him. You need to make sure that his hand is holding your piece of the puzzle. Because if you're not connected to him, you're a loose piece. And God help us, you'll become a loose cannon in the end. We've had lots of loose cannons come out to try to help us in the free life. And they're not really connected to the Lord. And a loose cannon causes more damage than anything else does. And, and, and without him, you can do nothing. At least nothing that really counts in the long run. Jesus prepares the pieces. And he does that by making sure that we stay connected to him. And, and notice finally that when Jesus recruits people for mission. He not only picks the pieces, he not only prepares the pieces, he places the pieces. Uh, There again in Mark chapter 3, he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him, that he could send them out to preach 
and to have authority to cast out the demons. We need to remember that the whole, the whole uh, purpose of these 12 men being chosen by Jesus and in learning to be with him was so that they would be prepared and empowered to go for him. In John 15, 16, Jesus had told his disciples, You did not choose me, I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. You see, if you truly spend time with Jesus, two things are going to happen to you. One is that you will bear fruit for him. Remember the verse I quoted before? If you abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So the first thing, if you hang around with Jesus, you'll bear fruit for him. The second thing is, you will go and bear fruit for him. You will not be able to keep it to yourself. I think of Isaiah, who, who once experienced being in the presence of the living God. Uh, in Isaiah 6, he saw, I saw the Lord lifted high uh, in his holy temple. And as he came into the presence of God, he heard then God asking, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah, having been in the presence of God, shouts out, here am I, Lord, send me. Send me. He goes in a worshiper, he comes out a worker. Being in the presence of God impelled him to go. And being in the presence of Jesus impelled these men to go and to share with others the good news of what Jesus had done for them. It's interesting to remind ourselves, isn't it, that, that none of these 12 local yokels had probably ever left the borders of their home country. Other than maybe an occasional trip from Galilee down to the temple in Jerusalem, none of these guys had ever gone anywhere, you know, except for this trip with Jesus. And then after three years of wandering around Palestine with Jesus, just before the Lord ascended back into heaven, Jesus turns around and tells them in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Now, we get so used to, to, you know, especially as missionaries, we get so used to jumping on an airliner, right? And, uh, you know, 32 hours, Sri Lanka to the States, you know, we're here. Uh, it's, it's really, it's tiring, but it's not really a big deal. We get so used to flying to the ends of the earth in half a day that we forget what these words must have sounded like to these guys from the first century. All nations. The ends of the earth. Lord, we, you know, we've never even left the borders of our own nation. We don't even know what's beyond that. The ends of the earth, Lord, we don't, we don't have a clue where the ends of the earth even are. And I can just imagine Jesus kind of smiling and saying, Never mind, boys. I'll be with you. Uh, I will never leave you or forsake you. You stick close to me. And I'll stick close to you. And I'll tell you, boys, together we will go places and do things that you've only read about in National Geographic when you were mending nets in Galilee. We're going to go places. And boy, did some of these guys go. Tradition tells us that Peter ended up in Rome. Peter the fisherman ends up in the imperial capital of Rome. Um, Andrew apparently traveled to the area of modern-day Georgia and Bulgaria, not our American state, the country of Georgia uh, next in, in Central Europe. Philip very possibly ended his ministry in the city of Carthage in North Africa. Simon the Zealot likely went to Persia 
Iran, modern-day Iran. Matthew went to Persia and then to Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Matthias, who, who later replaced Judas, uh, ministered in Syria. Bartholomew went to the little country of Armenia, Ethiopia, and then finally ended up in Arabia. And Thomas? Oh, I love Thomas. Anybody know where Thomas ended up? He ended up in India. And some traditions say that on the way to India, he made a small stopover in a little island off the tip of India named Sri Lanka. And I have to humbly confess that uh, before the Rubishes got to Sri Lanka in 1955, Thomas had already been there 20 centuries earlier. He beat us only by 20 centuries. And it is amazing to think about it, that, that almost every one of the starting 12 ended their lives hundreds, if not thousands of miles from home. The fact is, when Jesus sends you, you never quite know where you're going to end up. I once met a young lady from Germany who had never been out of Europe, never flown on an airplane. God sent her on a short-term mission to Sri Lanka in 1985, and she ended up spending the next 30 years of her life there. Of course, she married me in the process, and that might be a little explanation of how that all happened. But, uh, you know, that's what can happen uh, when God sends you. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a wonderful story. By the way, don't assume that this means that we are all now to quit our jobs and pack our suitcases and live the rest of our lives in China or Kazakhstan or, or Borneo. What it really means is this. It means that wherever God has called you, whether that is at home or abroad, you will live your life with the DNA of God's presence and God's mission coursing through your system. The, the, the arrows of your life are going to be constantly pointing outwards. You know, some, many Christians and many churches, they're, they're a box with all the arrows pointing in. And, and uh, there's this temptation, isn't there? The world is so ugly and so bad out there. We want to circle the wagons. We want to protect ourselves from all that. You know, and some Christians, they wake up every morning and they, you know, you know I'm so scared. What's the devil going to do to me today? It's, it needs to be the other way around. When we get up in the morning, it ought to be Satan who's saying, gosh, I don't know what these Christians are going to do to me today. And the arrows of our lives need to be facing outwards. Let's not forget that God has not called us as a church to be a cloister. He has called us to be salt and light in the worlds in which he has placed us. C.S. Lewis once famously described the church as the only organization that exists primarily for the benefit of non-members. And as Christians, the arrows of our lives need to be constantly pointing outwards rather than inwards. The north star of your soul is always going to be leading your piece of the puzzle into engagement with God's mission to reach the nations and to help put him put the broken pieces of the puzzle back together again. And that's true wherever you are. It, it will be a, if that's true, uh, it will be a priority. It will demand your prayers. It will demand your support, your time, your attention. Occasionally, it may send you to the ends of the earth. Maybe on a short-term mission. Maybe in a lifetime of service thousands of miles from here. Often, it will require you to go no further than the ends of your street. God calls some to the ends of the earth. 
God calls others to the end of their street. And, and, and let me tell you, God, God no longer needs uh, you to go across the ocean to reach the nations. As we see the, you know, whatever you believe about immigrants and borders and so forth, God is bringing the nations to us. And, and churches in the Northwest have never had a greater opportunity to touch and reach the nations for him. All you need to do is to go to Portland, and I'm sure even in, in, in Yakima, you know, the Sudanese and the, and the, and the refugees and the Midi, God is bringing the nations to us, and we need to be engaged with them. Never has there been a greater opportunity for the churches to reach the nation. Right here, right here in the community where God has called you to, to work. You need to be asking yourselves, and it was what a thrill to hear Brad talking about this new series coming up. You need to be asking, how are we engaged in the world that God has called us, has placed us in? How are we engaged in the community where he has called us to live? If God would yank Trinity Baptist Church out of this community, would Walla Walla miss anything? That's a good question to ask. How are you engaged? How are you investing in the place that God has called you to serve? And then from there around the world. What's our piece of the puzzle? If you're serious about investing your piece of the puzzle in God's mission, he will send you. He will place you in a corner of the puzzle here or there where he can use you to help bring the, 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 the puzzle to completion. As we close this morning, uh, one day the puzzle will be finished. One day God's mission will be accomplished. One day his kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. One day God's family will be complete. Do you ever wonder what that will be like? The Bible describes for us a day when heaven and earth will be made new and the nations will come to worship Jesus as the king. And in the book of Revelation, the, the Apostle John, who you, who you remember was one of the original twelve, one of the starting twelve, the Apostle John has been given a visionary tour of heaven. And I like to think that at some point in this tour, Jesus comes alongside John and says to him, Hey, John, my dear old friend from, uh, from our days on earth together, do you remember how we started this whole thing way back there in the mountain in Mark chapter 3? John, do you remember how many of you there were when I first started? Twelve. Just twelve ordinary pieces of the puzzle. All I had to start with was you and eleven of your buddies. And it wasn't much to begin with, believe me. And a lot of the angels in heaven were scratching their halos thinking, I've gone crazy picking these guys. And, but that's all I had to start with. And, and uh, But John, do you, do you ever wonder what ultimately happened when you guys decided to come to me, to stick with me, and to go for me? Let me show you something, John. Revelation 7-8 says this. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no man could count. From every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a glorious sight. What a glorious puzzle. From a paltry dozen to a numberless throng. From a minimum 
to a multitude no man can count. From a handful to a heavenful. Clearly, God is not interested in a thinly populated heaven. He's not interested in banquet tables uh, with empty seats. He's not interested in jigsaw puzzles with missing pieces. He wants you and me to be a part of the picture. And he invites us to be a part of the process. What's your piece of the puzzle? Will you offer your piece of it to him? Will you say, like Isaiah did, here, my Lord, send me. Let me be a part of the process. Whether that is to the ends of the earth or to the ends of my street, he wants you. He will choose you. He will prepare you, and he will send you. And as we move closer to the day when it will be mission accomplished and the puzzle will be completed, may God use Trinity Baptist Church here in the Walla Walla Valley to help put the pieces back together again, here and around the world. And may he give us the thrill of celebrating with the multitudes in heaven when the job is done. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Delight to be with you here this morning.